Let's get, I want everyone to give the man who created this video a round of applause, Mark Oliver. Well done. And uh, Jenna Bell uh, designed our logo as well. So let's give her a round of applause. That was amazing. Did you notice that there's a D and a C in the cross? Ah, some of you didn't, did you? There's actually a D and a C in the cross. It's very clever. And uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about the cross and the gospel and how that's really at the centre um, of Discover Church. It's a really special part of what we're doing. So the first week when we launched, we had a, a, a big crowd here, which was really, really exciting. And um, this, my sermon that day was a people who love God. And we spoke about Discover Church as we launched the church being a place that we focus on loving God and loving uh, people. So the second sermon uh, last week, I spoke about a point of life transformation so we want Discover the Church to be a place where people don't conform and behave in a certain way. We want Discover Church to be a place where people's hearts um, are changed. And we, our hearts really change when we remove obstacles to Jesus, because only Jesus can change a life. We spoke about Saul, who met Jesus uh, in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. And uh, once his obstacle of spiritual pride was removed... Uh, he was able to see Jesus for who he really was and his life was transformed. And today we're going to talk about being a gospel-centered community, gospel-centered community, and that Discover Church, like any good local church, should be united by the good news about Jesus. That's what should draw us together. I mean, look across this church, people from different, different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different, different um, socioeconomic classes, different lives, different upbringings, different childhoods. Some have been a Christian for five minutes. Some aren't even a Christian at all here today or watching online. Uh, we're all in different places, but the only thing that can really unite us is the good news about Jesus. It's the only thing. If it's social things or money things or sports teams or work or what we do for a job, then we're not going to be together because we're all too different. Only Jesus and the good news about him can unite us. So Tim Keller, who I'm going to share a couple of quotes with you from Tim Keller today, says that the first task of contextualization, now that's a big word, explain it in a, min in a minute, the first task of contextualization is to immerse yourself in the questions, hopes, and beliefs of the culture so you can give a biblical, gospel-centered, everyone say gospel-centered, gospel-centered response to its questions. So this is the critical part of being a gospel-centered church, that you can look outside of Christianity and outside of the church into the culture and, and immerse yourself in the culture. You don't have to be afraid of going out there and talking to people with different worldviews, different belief systems. But you can go out there and be confident that what you believe in about Jesus, you can share with your neighbor because you contextualize the gospel. So you don't talk to your neighbor as if they live in first century Palestine, which is what we read in the Bible. That's first century Palestine, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. That's the truth of the gospel in the Bible, but you share that gospel truth in a way that your Aussie mate next door who's mowing his lawns on a Saturday morning is going to be understand. understand. That's what it means to bring the gospel to the center, not just to leave it in the Bible, but to bring it to the center. So I've actually been doing um, a course at the moment that Tim Keller uh, was involved in putting together. It's a worldwide course uh, run in many different nations. It goes for 10 months. It's for pastors. 
and you meet once a month with different pastors from around the city. So I go up to the CBD, right, uh, get out off at uh, Flagstaff Station and in the old Anglican church there, St. James's Cathedral, which is actually one of the first churches built in Victoria. And uh, once a month I'm studying. I'm the only Pentecostal pastor there. So there's Anglican ones and there's Presbyterian ones and there's Lutheran ones and I'm the crazy charismatic amongst it all. A lot of them are actually younger than me, if you can believe. I'm not that old as a pastor, but a lot of them are just in their late 20s or early 30s. And uh, we're studying a lot of Tim Keller's thinking and um, approach to the gospel. And he really has, I suppose, championed the cause for gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered Christians, that what is at the center of our walk with Jesus, what is at the center of our community, and what is even at the center of our city. So Frankston and Casey in our city would be the gospel. Now, Tim Keller was initially, as a young man, was a pastor in a rural church in America. But in the 1990s, he went to New York City. So 20 million people on that little island there, New York City, and he started a Presbyterian church called Redeemer, little Presbyterian church with a handful of people. And his aim was to bring the good news about Jesus to young professionals in New York. So musicians, classical musicians, actors, Broadway, people who are trying to make it on Broadway, businessmen who are working on Wall Street. His aim was to bring the gospel to young single professionals in New York. A Presbyterian old bald man bringing it to the coolest, most secular people in all the earth. The most secular, New York was considered the most secular city on the face of the earth in the 1990s. You think of Will and Grace, you think of Sex in the City, you think of all these shows that were happening in the 90s and that was kind of what New York was like. Anyway, his church grew into thousands and thousands and thousands of people and along with many other churches in the city, they took the Christian population of New York from only about one or 2% up to 10% in a decade. So in a decade, out of the 20 million New Yorkers that went from 1% Christian to 10% Christian, just by bringing the gospel and presenting it in a way to the people who were actually listening. Not presenting it like he would talk with his mates, not presenting it like he learnt in seminary or theological school, not presenting it in a way that just he understood it, but presenting it in a way that young, single New Yorkers could understand the gospel. And guess what? The gospel works. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel can bring anyone, even the most secular city, to know Jesus Christ. You know, every person, every family, every church, every organization is centered on something. There's something right there at the middle that everyone is wrapped around. There's a hook that everything is hooked on. There's a center, there's a highest value of every, you might be able to think right now at your place of work, what is the most important thing that everything and everyone revolves around? Maybe in your family or your extended family, there's something at the center. Often it's a patriarch or a matriarch in the, in the bigger family who kind of calls the shots and kind of what they say goes and what they approve is what's approved and what they disapprove is what doesn't go. Everything has something at the center. Every church has that. And at the center of every good church, a healthy church, should be the gospel, the good news about Jesus. But often it's not. Sometimes it's a group of people who hold power in the church. Sometimes it's a, it's a secondary theological issue. Sometimes it's a political bent or a social justice bent. Or there's a bent 
that the church might have is the most important value that can sometimes replace the good news about Jesus, which should be at the center. The fact is every person, every organization, every family has something at the center. Your life has something at the center. It's meant to be Jesus. It's meant to be serve the Lord your God and he is one, the first commandment. But it could be something else. I know that you'll probably agree with me. There's lots of things competing to be at the center and to be the highest value, most important thing. For parents, it's hard. If I find it hard and four kids, it's like hard not to revolve my whole life around them or what they want and them feeling good and them being looked after well it can be difficult but we must strive to keep Christ at the center and as the most important thing why 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 discover church why must we have the gospel at the center because it is the only thing that can unite us without the gospel we will be divided without the gospel we will be tribal. Without the gospel, it will deteriorate into partnership. It'll, it, it'll be tribe against tribe. It'll be left of politics against right of politics. It'll be liberal theology against conservative theology. There's always two sides, isn't there? That the gospel offers us a third alternative. The Discover Church community is united by the good news about Jesus. And everything we're preaching over these first few weeks as we relaunch the church and the brand are really important moments. So if you've missed a sermon or you're going to miss a sermon, I encourage you to listen because these are foundational pillars that we are laying in place here. They're going to dictate our future for a long time to come. As I said on the first Sunday when I shared, I'm not going to get up here and share some big, fancy, shiny vision that you're like, yes, I can click like, yes, I can follow that church, yes, I might come along for another service. I'm not going to try and sell you something because you're not a consumer and I'm not a charlatan or a marketer, I'm just a pastor. But I want to lay down in these first few weeks the absolute fundamentals, not just of our church, but of what any healthy local church should be focusing on. Tim Keller also said, a gospel-centered church should combine the zeals that are not typically seen together in the same church. So what this means is that nothing should divide us because the gospel is at the center. We don't separate into tribes. You just heard a brilliant testimony here about blessing young people into adulthood. Why is that up on the stage? Because we don't separate old from young. We don't, we're not here just for adults and not for children. They can just go out the back and play while we all have church. No, what they're doing in kids' church is equally as important as what we're doing in here as in adult boring church. No, sorry, it's not boring church. It's not quite as fun. You don't get lollies when you get the answers right, but you know what I mean. It's the same on a Friday night with youth. It's not like, oh, let the youth do some youthy stuff because they're teenagers, you know, trying to sort themselves out. No, 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 no. It's just as valuable. As the pastor of this church, I give as much attention to what is happening in the kids' church as what's happening in youth group as what we're doing here on a Sunday morning because the gospel must combine us and draw us together, not separate us. But as Tim Keller says, isn't this brilliant, the church can also combine zeals that are not typically seen together in many churches. 
So yes, we can have prophetic breakthrough worship, deep intercession, but we can also combine that with some liturgy and some conservatism and some classical music as well as some contemporary music. We can have people that are really into politics and want to get out there into the marketplace and raise up kingdom businesses. But we can also, because of the gospel combining us, have people that are not so into that. People that enjoy more hospitality and doing food or maybe pastoral care. They love the life group stuff and getting people around and having coffees and working through things. Some want to get out there and fight in the culture for God and others just want to be at home having the one-on-one conversations. We can have all the zeals, all the passions, all the kinds of people, all the kinds of beliefs, all the kind of traditions and we can all come together because the gospel is at the center. Can anyone say amen to that? Okay, oh great. So you're with me? There's no tribe here, preacher, Listener, okay, there's no trouble. We're together in this. So what is the gospel then? Let's break this down. Mark, the evangelist Mark or St. Mark in his gospels, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, which is their story about Jesus, starts his gospel like this. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the gospel in a nutshell. First verse of Mark's gospel. It's you and Galeon, Jesus Christos Huios Theos in Koine Greek. So I've just grabbed that out of my um, study stuff there. That's the English at the top. That's the literal Koine Greek second. And then it's the transliteration at the bottom there. Euangelion, what does that mean? It means an announcement. It's where we get our word evangelism or evangelist from. It means to herald, to announce, to shout out, there is great news. Let me tell you this fantastic news. What is this fantastic news about? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the Greek word for Joshua. Okay, so in the Old Testament, it would just be Joshua. In the New Testament, it's Jesus. That's just the Greek word for Joshua. So this is Jesus. He came down to earth. He had an earthly name, an earthly body. He really lived on the earth in the first century. He's not just another Joshua though. This Joshua also has Messiah, anointed one, Christos added to his name. He's anointed. He's the son of David. He's what the Old Testament was all talking about. It was all pointing towards this Christos, this Messiah that would come. This is the good news that this man, Jesus, who they used to call Joshua, who lived in the first century, wasn't just another bloke, wasn't just another carpenter, a Jewish man. He was the promised Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was Emmanuel, God on earth with us. He was the son of God, Mark says. So he's the second person of the Trinity. You've got Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's the son of God, he's Theos, he's God incarnate, his God has come to earth to be with us. Can I explain it to you in another way? The gospel is the full story of Jesus, the A to Z. It's the cradle, it's the cross, and it's the crown. The cradle is all about Jesus coming. So it's the first part of his life. God came to earth, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It's his coming to earth, it's his birth, it's his earthly ministry. He went around doing good things, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. He spoke, he preached, he fed people, he raised up dead people, he challenged the scholars of the day, the the teachers of the law of the day, the Pharisees of the day. He did all of this work. He lived a life, a real life. He had a real mum and dad, Mary and Joseph. It's the first part. 
of the gospel, the cradle. The second part is the cross. The pinnacle of his ministry. The center of the center of the gospel. His work on the cross where he took our place there and died as you to take away your sins, your selfishness, your fragileness, your problems, your mental health issues, your family issues, your work challenges, your physical ailments. He hung there so that you would not have to live under the curse anymore. It's the substitution. And then finally, the crown is the final part of the gospel. Jesus didn't die and stay in the grave. He rose again. And he didn't just rise again and walk around for a few days and that was it. He rose again. He revealed himself and then he ascended to heaven and said, I will return. It's his second coming. We still live in this dimension of the gospel, the crown. He wears the crown. He is the king of all the universe. Let me show you this in a, again in a few scriptures. So let's go back to the cradle and I'm going to take all of these from uh, the book of Romans. So this is Paul. If you really want to read about the gospel, the book of Galatians, the book of Romans are some of the best places and Ephesians is really good as well. But Romans really unpacks the gospel and what it is. So I've taken all my scriptures from there. First of all, let's talk about the cradle. Romans chapter one, verse two. God promised this good news. Everyone say good news. That's the euangelion. Long ago through his prophets in the holy scriptures. The good news is about his son and in his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus, our Lord. So you see in this scripture, Paul isn't telling us the whole gospel, the cradle, the cross and the crown. He's really focusing in on the cradle. He's focusing in on Jesus came to earth and he lived a human life here. And he's helping all of the Jewish listeners look back and realize that this is the heritage. Jesus didn't come to say the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish tradition is all gotta be wiped away. It's all rubbish, it's all a mistake, get rid of it. No, Paul's saying Jesus is actually the climax of the Old Testament. Jesus is actually the fulfillment of everything. Adam and Eve and Abraham and, and, and all the guys in the Old Testament, Moses and Daniel and Joshua, they were all pointing like a signpost. They're all a shadow of the Jesus who would come. Jesus had elements of Moses. He had elements of Abraham. He had elements of Daniel and Joseph. But he pulled all of these great men and women of the Old Testament and he was the perfect son of God, the one that could save. This is the cradle. He came from heaven to earth, and he lived a life. This is the first part of the gospel. The second part, the cross, that we touched on before, this is a very famous scripture that is one of the best uh, explanations of the gospel, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. So I'm reading from the New Living here. If you're reading the NIV, they would say the gospel about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first, Old Testament, and also the Gentile, everyone else is not a Jew. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. Because guess what, everyone? We're all wrong. No matter who you are, no matter how great you are, no matter how important you are, we're all wrong. And only Jesus was right, but he can make us right through the cross. This is accomplished 
from start to finish by faith. Nothing you can do to make yourself right. All you can do is believe and have faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. The cross, which we celebrate at Easter, the cradle's about Christmas. The cross, the second part of the gospel, is about Easter. It's all about substitution and Jesus taking our place. The only way to access the power of the cross is through faith, is to believe. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can show God that's enough. All you can do is believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And finally, the crown, Paul says in later on in Romans 8 verse 11, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living in you. This is the last piece of the gospel. Jesus rose again. And he is alive and he is the king of all the earth. What does this mean for those who believe in Jesus? That means that that same spirit, the Holy Spirit, that raised him up from the dead can live on the inside of you. Because of faith in Jesus, the spirit of God himself can live within you, illuminating your heart, bringing life to your mind, bringing healing to your body bringing meaning and love and grace and mercy to your relationships, to your neighbors. It can flow through you, not because you're fantastic, but because the spirit of the living God, who is fantastic, lives on the inside of you. And this is the eternal nature of Christ, alive forevermore, and those that believe in Jesus, alive forevermore. As I said before, at the center of the center gospel, Right at the middle, if you could put a point at the center of the gospel, the gospel that's meant to be at the center of our lives, our church, our community, the point at the center is this work on the cross. It is this, what a scholar might say is substitutionary atonement, or might say is penal substitutionary atonement. You may have heard that word before, or PSA, and there's a lot of controversy around the different ways that Christ died for us and what that meant. You might have heard of the Victor Christos theology, which is a different angle to PSA. And I won't get into all that today. It's not really a Sunday morning thing. It's more of a study university and get a degree type thing. The important piece is no matter what theory you believe about the cross, this is all you need to take home as an average congregation member that's just trying to follow Jesus out there on Monday. All you need to take home is this. The cross is all about substitution. That's the important bit. Whether it's Christos Victor or whether it's um, PSA, Penal Substitutionary Atonement, the important thing is it's about substitution. Again, Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Everyone say free gift. Oh, I love hearing those words. Doesn't that give peace to your heart? Do you hear any performance? entrepreneurism, strength. Do you hear any of that? No, it's a free gift. Do you hear perfection? Do you hear IQ? Do you hear academic? Do you hear big wage, big bank account? No, 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 no. It's the free gift of God. You could do nothing to put Christ on the cross, but he put himself there for you, for me, for Frankston, for Casey, for everyone. Romans 5 verse 6 to 8, you see just at the right time, when we were still powerless, just let this seep in this morning, even if you want to close your eyes and just let this wash over you this morning. When we were still powerless, Christ 
died for the ungodly. Not for just the people in church, he died for the ungodly. He died for Saul that we read about last week, the Christian killer. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. We were sinners and we are sinners, but he died. We didn't love him, but he did love us. We try to love him, but we always fail, but he still loves us and substituted himself on the cross for us. This is gonna blow your mind. I had to put it on the slide for you so that you can take it home or take a photo or look at it during the week. This is from John Stott and his book called The Cross of Christ. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Just let these words wash over you again. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. While God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. The great lie that most people live by and that all of us really wrestle with at some time or some point in the day or some point in the week is this that we assert ourselves into the position of strength, capability, intelligence, strong enough, good enough, holy enough, that we insert ourselves there. That is the epitome of sin. That is the epitome of violation against the holy God. We try to substitute ourselves to be the saviour, to be the one who's gonna get this family through, to be the worker that's gonna make my workplace successful, to be the friend that's gonna be loyal so that no one will be able to let me down. We constantly attempted to assert ourselves into the position of saviour, the position of holy, the position of taking care of everything, which is actually exactly what sin is, that we become the little God in our little lives. Yet the very opposite is true, that the greatest act of sacrifice in the face of the earth was God, who was already perfect, who didn't need you, didn't need me, didn't need to prove himself. He chose to come down, come down and become human, to sweat, to go to the bathroom, to deal with temptations, to deal with hate and betrayal. And pain. He came down and got his hands dirty in order to substitute himself for where you deserved the consequences of your sin, he decided, I will substitute myself and I will put myself where man should be. I will go where I shouldn't go. I will touch the unclean and the ugly and the downtrodden and the marginalized and the poor and the weak and I will be there with them and put myself there, substitute myself in where I should not be. Substitution and the work of Jesus on the cross. It's like a criminal in a, in, a, in a court of law that has murdered a little girl. And the older brother of this little girl sits there through the whole court process watching this criminal, watching this criminal come to justice. Eventually this criminal is guilty as charged and is sentenced to prison and this older brother feels that sense of satisfaction that justice has been done for his little sister that was brutally murdered. 
But just before the criminal is dragged off for prison for the rest of his life or dragged off to receive the lethal injection or the electric chair, the older brother stands up and comes and says, I'll take your place. Even though you murdered my little sister, even though you deserve what's coming to you, I will step in. I'll take your prison sentence. I'll take the electric chair on your behalf. I'll take the lethal injection. Not so that he can go off into some other prison cell. No, but so that the murderer can walk free and live a life of freedom and liberation without restriction. The older brother who is perfect, the older brother who is in pain, the older brother who deserved justice is the one who takes the prison sentence. That's maybe a more localized, easy to understand way that the gospel, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus takes our place. That's at the center of the center of the gospel. So what does this look like for us? Let's get out of the Bible. Let's get out of, there's a bit of theology here today. It's a little bit heavy on theology. And let's, as we finish off this morning, we're going to take communion around this. What better way to reflect on the blood and the body of Jesus? But let's look at this for our everyday life. The gospel is your third alternative. Every day, every moment offered to you. There's alternative one, there's alternative two, and then there's this third alternative. The first line of our table there, you've got relativism, you've got religion offered to you every day. You can go the path of religion, which is legalism and judgment, and well, I'm following the Bible, and I did my prayer, and I came to church. That's one way to come to salvation, to come to freedom. You've got relativism, which is license, do what you like. How could a loving, kind God, he's not really, he doesn't care that much about me and my sin and my lifestyle or whatever, it's okay. I'll make it, it's apathetic, it's a license to do what you like with your life. The gospel offers us a third alternative, that middle column there, it's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you'll fall into relativism and sin and just sometimes just do whatever you want. And you'll fall into religion and you'll judge others and say, hey, I read my Bible seven days this week and they don't even pray properly. Yeah, you'll fall into that. But you can always come back to this third alternative, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is grace and mercy and a relationship with God. This second line is really important. This really helps me understand these three alternatives. You've got, I disobey, therefore I'm accepted. That's the relativistic way. I disobey because I'm alternate, because I don't want to fit in. I don't want to conform. So I'm going to show everyone how different I am. And I'll feel good about myself because I've pushed everything away. I've not conformed to my parents, to my church, to my boss. That's one way to breed your own salvation. The other way is I obey, therefore I'm accepted. This was the one that I grew up with, that I've struggled with, that I've wrestled with all of my life. God, I've obeyed. God, I've done what you wanted. God, I'm a good Christian boy. Therefore, look after me, bless me. Give me a pretty wife. Give me some money. Help me get that breakthrough in my job. I've obeyed you, God. I've loved you, God. I've done everything. I've served in my church, God. I've read my Bible. Therefore, please accept me. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong. An implication of the gospel can be obedience, for sure. And this is the third alternative. I am accepted through Christ, the free gift of God. He died on the cross, not because I asked him, but because he wanted to. It's a free gift that sets me free. That's the gospel. Therefore, I obey. 
Not because what I have done or what I haven't done, disobedience, I obey because he loved me first and I love him back. I obey because I want to follow Jesus and I want to love God with my heart, my soul, my mind, with everything. This is the third alternative. In the church, this next line here, in the church, we can accommodate the culture. We can let the culture of Aussie culture come into the church here. That's one alternative for doing Christianity. The other way is that we can fight the culture. We can all come into church and say, oh, there, oh, did you read the news? Oh, the outrage, oh, you know, transgenderism and oh, they're attacking our children and oh, this is going on and oh, did you see that ungodly politician that said this and that? And we can sit in here and fight the culture. There's two options there. The culture can come in and we just all become like everyone else. There's no difference between us. We can go out and we can fight the culture or we can find a third alternative. Which as the people of God, we come in here and we love God, we worship God and then we go out every week and we renew the culture. We look for ways to bring the message of Jesus. We don't have to fight and outrage and shout and we don't have to become the world and look like the world and dress like the world and talk like the world but we can find a third alternative, a different way to live. That there's difference but it's relative. People still get us. We might dress like our neighbor. I might wear a T-shirt when I preach. But in my heart, I'm devoted to Jesus. And that might be different from my neighbor. The third alternative. Let me jump on to the next slide. The gospel center salvation is grace, not works. This scripture here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, is the great scripture that may you be able to sit in a Protestant church. This is the Lutheran scripture from Martin Luther 400 years ago that turned his mind, that led to a reformation in the Catholic church as well as breeding the Protestant arm of the body of Christ. God saved you by his grace when you believed. This is grace. And you can't take credit for this. Hope you're okay this morning. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. No one, so none of us can boast about it. Over the last eight or nine weeks, um, a bunch of us, mainly the core leaders in our church, have been doing a course called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's been, it's been fantastic. It's deeply, deeply impacted uh, me. And there's a couple of points in the course where you look back at your life. You look back at your childhood you look back at grief and loss and difficult things that have happened in your life. Um, you look back at your family of origin, so your parents, your grandparents, different messages that came through, different things that have affected the way you think, the way you see the world from your family. Really, really impacting. And something was really highlighted to me, something that I've always kind of known, but it just, man, it became crystal clear, maybe because it's I turned 40 in a couple of weeks and I'm just getting some better perspective on the last 20 years of adulthood, but... Uh, what I realized is that, man, I am a chronic overworker. I work and perform and push and shove and try in every part of my life. And it's always been a struggle for me. Every year I start the year by setting goals. And when I come to my spiritual goals of what I want in my prayer life, it's been the same goal for about 15 years. It's like I want less effort and me loving you and me doing this and me being here in prayer and I just want more 
love and just freedom and I want to come and pray because I love you, God, and we have a relationship. It's always had to be my goal because so much of my prayer and my Bible reading and everything, it's performance and it's trying hard to be a good Christian and a good boy. But then it's the same physically. When I was in my 20s, it was get big muscles and go to the gym. It was play sport. And I've struggled to let go of sport. I was still playing soccer earlier this year as almost a 40-year-old, barely playing with guys that I could literally be their dad, like 19, 20-year-old kids, trying to get through another game, another week. My body's screaming at me, you can't do it anymore, you can't do it anymore, falling apart here, falling apart there. But I couldn't let it go because I'm strong and I can do it. Mentally, it was the same. Physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. Be tough. Don't cry. Get through another betrayal. Get through another injustice. Deal with another friendship that falls apart. Just be stronger. But God's been showing me, don't be stronger. Just cry over it. It's okay. Don't be tougher emotionally. Just grieve when things are crap. There's a lot of depressive things in life. Just have a crap week or two and let the junk in your heart and the junk of human relationships and the injustice of life just Just embrace the pain and pray about it and cry about it and come to the grace of God. Don't be tougher and stronger. And And what I've realized more and more and more is that I'm not doing this scripture. And this is the core of the gospel. It's by grace that Caleb Nichols is saved. It's by grace that I have a body that can walk around up here and isn't ill and I'm not in a bed. It's by grace that I have a wife. It's by grace that I have a job. It's by grace that I earn any money and can go on any holidays or buy any jeans or do whatever I need to. It's by grace. It's the grace of God that I'm not in a mental institution and my brain is fried. It's by the grace of God that I have a couple of friends. It's by the grace of God. Nothing I have done in this life has earned me anything. But it's the hand of God, it's the protection of God, it's the voice of God is really the only thing at the end of the day. And I've realized I need to stop smuggling in my performance and my Christian effort and my human effort to say, hey God, look, I'm trying, I'm good. And it doesn't even matter if if this is outside of the church and outside of Christianity, it's the same problem out there in the world for the atheist, the hedonistic person, the secularist, It's the same tone, don't you hear it? Be good, be kind. You know, the National Bank or the the ANZ or the whatever that has makes some mistake or the football club that whatever, it's always, we will be better. We will learn. We will educate our players more. Why? Because everyone just has to be stronger, has to be smarter, has to be more financially well off, has to be better at that. We just have to try harder. Everything about this world is pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just be a bit better. It's the complete opposite from Christianity, which is, it's fine that you are a dirty sinner. It's fine that while you were still a selfish sinner doing your own thing, it's fine. God gave you the gift of Jesus Christ. The problem with what I'm talking about this morning, everyone, is that it requires you to be aware of your sin, your selfishness, and your frailty to accept this free gift. That's the problem. You see, when the very essence of becoming a Christian is that you first and foremost go, I'm a sinner. I'm sorry, God. I repent of my effort and I receive your free gift of Jesus Christ. And this is the problem with the stuff I'm preaching. It requires humility. It requires repentance. This is the challenge for us as Discover Church. 
To live like this with the gospel at the center, it means you're going to have messy people. You're going to have people sin hanging out here and hanging out there. It's going to require the cross for us to be unified as a church, to show grace to kids, you know, when they're sorting stuff out in their adolescent years, to show grace for the new person who walks in and doesn't know everything about the Bible and hasn't done 20 years like you've done 20 years. It gets messy when you have the gospel at the center because the gospel-centered life offers us love, not judgment. If we can just jump forward to that slide. It's just everyone's got their communion in their hands. We're not going to take it quite yet. I'm sorry you've got to hold it for a while. I hope your fingers don't fatigue, but here's a tip. Just hold it like that, okay? You won't get finger fatigue holding it like that. What does this look like? This, this, the gospel, Christ, the cross, the free gift. What does this look like in a normal life? Raising kids, going to work tomorrow, trying to get some exercise in, trying to have a little pray tomorrow morning, tomorrow night before you go to bed. Well, at its heart, it looks like living a life where you offer love, not judgment. Jack read it out this morning in John 3, verse 17, not 16, verse 17. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross to say, ha ha, look what I did up there and then look at how you live. Look at that dirty little thought you had. Look at that selfish thing you did to your wife. Look at that, huh, I died there and you're telling little white lies. No, 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 no. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Who are you or I to judge the church down the road for how they worship? Who are you or I to ever sit there and look at that, you know, that unsaved person at work that needs Jesus? My goodness, they need to be a Christian. Who are you and I to ever think a thought like that or make a comment like that or look at a young adult in the church and go, oh man, they got a lot to learn. Who loved you when you were a young adult? Who showed some guidance to you when you were just a kid trying to work it out? Who was there for you that time you fell apart in your sin and screwed it up and they just were like, okay, it's cool. I'm sure there was a couple of people, but if, even if there wasn't a couple of people, I know one person that was there, it was Jesus, just loving you again. The essence of Discover Church must be the picture of the father waiting in Luke 15 for the prodigal son to come home. Because to be a healthy local church is to be a local church where prodigal sons and prodigal daughters, they come back and go, Father, oh, I, I, can I be a slave maybe? Father, can I, maybe I can help out in the cafe. Like, is that okay? Like I've been so dirty and rotten and stuffed it up. Dad, can I maybe, you know, I, I, I don't have any clothes really. Can you just spare a jumper or something? Can, this is how people are gonna come to God, full of shame, full of fear, full of hurt, full of pain, dirty, rotten, twisted thinking, weird ideas about church and the Bible and whatever. But the picture of love, how you live a gospel-centered life is this. As the Father, in the essence of the Father, in the spirit of the Father, you just open your arms. No, you're my son. You're not a slave. I'm not just gonna get you a jumper. I'm not just gonna give you a few dollars to get your next meal. No, you're a son. Come into all the inheritance. Put a ring on his finger. Bring a new 
set of clothes. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. The prodigal son, the prodigal daughter has returned. Maybe it's the backslidden kid who comes back to church 20 years later. Maybe it's your friend in your street who's, who's always criticized you and made jokes with you about your faith, but one day they say, hey, can I, can, what, what is this stuff you believe? Or can I come check out your church? Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's your grandchildren. Maybe it's your husband, your wife, your best friend. I don't know. But the gospel-centered life is offering love and mercy and acceptance and belonging and free gifts and empathy and a listening ear and a meal or some money if they need some practical needs to be met. The gospel-centered life is not one of judgment. Well, I didn't, you know, oh, back when I had my troubles, I didn't, you know, oh, I don't know, oh, I don't know if I've got time, oh, my neighbor wants to talk, but, you know, I've got to put the kids to bed at 6.30, it's getting, oh, I don't know. That is not the gospel-centered life. Oh, I've got to leave work, oh, off the clock now, I can't stay for a beer and talk about life and relate to you and help you or listen to you, I've got things to do. That's judgment, that's rules, it's legalism. When I say legalism, it's not just about pharisaical rules and Christian rules, it's also about your schedule and your time and your energy and all your rules you have around your life. That's still being a Pharisee because it's offering judgment, not love. It's offering, oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I don't have space for that. Oh, that's a bit uncomfortable. Oh, that's not my favorite person. Like, you know, I'm into footy and they're into classical music. Oh, I don't don't know. That's judgment. You've judged them for their hobbies, their interests, their dress their age, their race, their whatever. We're going to take communion because this is not easy. This is not natural. This is not natural for a sinner like me, like you, to live in perfect love. It's difficult. It's a lifelong journey. And more than anyone else, it's the person who doesn't know Jesus who needs our love. You know, the church, a church is the only organization in the world that cares more about its non-members. Every other organization is concerned with the people inside the organization, the members. The church is the one community on the face of the earth that should care more about the people who are not here than the people who are here. Been reading a lot of books lately, so sorry, you get another quote. J.L. Packer, Knowing God, if you ever get time to read this book, it will change your life. Phenomenal. Anyone read it? A few of you? Brilliant. We have all heard the gospel presented as God's triumphant answer to human problems. Problems of our relation with ourselves and our fellow humans and our environment. Well, there is no doubt that the gospel does bring us solutions to these problems. But it does so by first solving a deeper problem. The deepest of all human problems, the problem of men and women's relation with their maker. Your workmate, your brother, your uncle, your family member, your neighbor, your next door neighbor, I mean, this may be them. We can celebrate the triumph of God's work. We can celebrate that it's brought freedom to our hearts. We can celebrate all of these great things. We can celebrate the Christian foundations of our nation of Australia. Fantastic. But the deepest of all the problems that the gospel solves is your relationship with your maker. But more than that, it's your neighbor who doesn't know their maker. They don't even know that their greatest problem has already been solved, unless you or I tell them. 
Only 4% of Australians go to church once a month. 4% of us, 96% of our friends, family, workmates, they don't know church. They've never been inside a church. I'm trying to get the guy across the road here from the Asian joint I go to all the time to come to church. And you know what he said to me the other day? He said to me, I just, I, I just wouldn't know what to wear. And here am I thinking like, you'll love it and music and like, he doesn't even know what we wear to church. He's so ignorant to what church is about and God is about and Bible and Jesus is about. I'm thinking we're pitching about here. He's thinking like, I don't even been, I've never been inside a church. What do I wear? I wouldn't want to wear something inappropriate. That's the great challenge for us. How do we deliver the gospel to the 96% who have never been inside a building and wouldn't even know what to wear to church? While their problem that needs a cross and a saviour has already been solved by Jesus, yet they will not know unless somebody tells them the good news about Jesus Christ.